I'd like to welcome those of you who just arrived. Just start with some introductions. Uh, I'm Joseph. Uh, on my right is Susan O'Brien, who's been a long-time teacher here at IMS. So Sharon is on my left, Sharon Salzberg, and Mark Coleman, teacher, one of the teachers uh, from Spirit Rock out in California. So I'd like to talk tonight a little bit, just kind of a brief introduction to the retreat experience. Of course, many of you are old yogis and are very familiar with it. Um, but I think it's all, always helpful just to be reminded of certain basic qualities that we can bring to our practice that support it and help it. Retreat is always a special time in our lives. You know, we come here and together we really create a place of refuge where we develop some fundamental tools, some basic tools for investigating the nature of who we are. Investigating some very fundamental questions. What is the nature of our lives? What is the nature of this mind and body? Now, how is it that we create suffering for ourselves and for others in the world? And what are the possibilities for experiencing and living in greater peace, you know, with greater happiness? Through meditation practice, we also explore the very great mystery of consciousness. What is the nature of awareness? You know, who is it or what is it that's knowing all of our experience? Now, for so many of us, these very basic questions of being alive, of being a human being, about the nature of our experience, so easy for these questions, the fundamental ones of our lives, just to get covered over in the busyness, in the momentum of what we're doing. And when they do get covered over, then we are simply acting out you know, all the deeply conditioned habit patterns that have developed over all these years. As we begin the retreat, though, slowly, and it will take some days for those of you who have just come, we begin to settle into a place of greater stillness, a place of greater silence, a place of depth, where there's a tremendous immediacy of experience. Now, there's not a lot of diversion here. Beside the bulletin board, and, you know, a few notes around here and there. There's really nothing else to do except to pay attention. You know, and so we, we come face to face with ourselves and everything that means. Another great Persian poet and mystic Rumi, he said, which is worth more? A crowd of thousands 
or your own genuine solitude. Freedom or power over an entire nation. A little time alone will prove more valuable than anything that could ever be given you. And I think everyone who's been on retreat knows what he's talking about. There's just this tremendous gift of awareness that comes when we pay attention, when we're undistracted. But as many of you know, this is not an easy journey. There are a lot of ups and downs and often a lot of struggles. The Buddha likened this meditative path of exploration, he likened it to swimming upstream. And it often feels like that because there are very strong habits in our minds, habits of judging and comparing and liking and disliking, you know, hopes and fears and expectations, and all these play themselves out here in retreat as well as they do in our lives in the world. It takes a very strong commitment. It really takes a certain a certain fire within us to stay awake. It's not easy to stay awake. To stay aware through all the ups and downs of our experience, both here and in our lives. Sometimes experience is very pleasant. You know, and we can get lost in that. Sometimes experience is very unpleasant. And we can become very reactive to that. So our practice and our challenge and our commitment through all of these changes is to simply be aware, to be mindful, to be awake. Sometimes we'll be calm and concentrated and peaceful. Sometimes we'll be bored and restless and agitated and you'll be wondering why you ever came. And it's all part of the show. You know, so many years earlier on in my practice, I would struggle with these difficulties, thinking that I was a bad yogi or that I was a bad person, you know, that all this stuff was arising in my mind, in my body. It was difficult. But at a certain point, and this was really a powerful point of transformation for me, I began to appreciate seeing the shadow side of my mind because I would rather see what's going on than not see and simply act it all out. That changed the whole way I was relating then to the difficulties. And I understood much more deeply that all of it is part of the path. It's not a mistake. It doesn't mean that something is wrong. Often we will speak about the great effort that's needed to stay awake. Because it does take effort to come out of the habit patterns of our delusion. There's another way of speaking about this also. And that is we can understand Dharma practice not only 
as requiring great effort, but also requiring a deep surrender. And we can frame it all in terms of a surrender to the moment. And surrender here doesn't mean kind of giving up and rolling over. Surrender here means simply, although it's not easy, simply to open up to whatever it is that presents itself in the moment. Can I be with this? Can I be with this? Can I be with this? Whatever it is, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, can we open to it? Can we surrender to the truth of the moment? So how can we do this? You know, how do we train ourselves? There are a few supports for you in this retreat format that are of tremendous help. You know, there's, there's a very large body of experience that comes from people who have walked on this path, not only for the 2,500 years of the Buddhist teachings, but for the almost 30 years of people sitting right in this hall. There are a lot of yogi hours that have been put in this hall. And so there's a body of knowledge you know, about, okay, how can we do this? How can we undertake this? A very key support in the practice and in your, your own efforts is silence. Just keeping silence, refraining from speaking, except of course with you know in the teacher interview groups. And it's so interesting because people who have never been on retreat before often are most apprehensive about the silence. You know, feel oh, could I possibly be silent for a week or nine days? It just seems daunting. And yet almost without exception. At the end of a retreat, it's the silence that the people have most appreciated. It is such a relief to be able to settle back into oneself and not have to present oneself to someone else. It's a chance to not be creating self-image, to not be creating a persona. And it is so wonderful. And the silence, we extend it a little more. For the most part, we really discourage uh, writing or reading or even eye contact. You know, and it doesn't have to be studied. But it's just that sense of staying within yourself, being within yourself. And the the beauty of this kind of experience is that here we are with almost a hundred people. So there's a support of the Sangha, the support of everyone here. And yet the silence provides the solitude. So it's powerful. I want to read just a, a little bit of a poem by David White. He's a wonderful poet. And name of this poem, and I'll read just part of it, is It Happens to Those Who Live Alone. And really, for this retreat, you're all living alone, even with everyone here. It happens to those who live alone that they feel sure of visitors when no one else is there. 
until the one day and one particular hour, working in the quiet garden, when the green bud at the center of their slowly opening silence flowers in belonging. And they realize at once that all along they have been an invitation to everything and every kind of trouble, and that life happens by to those who inhabit silence. I have my freedom today because nothing really happened and nobody came to see me. That's a perfect description of the retreat. (laughs) Nothing really happened and nobody came to see me. (laughs) And in that, we enjoy our freedom. We begin to experience some freedom. So enjoy the silence, settle into it, honor it, respect it in yourself and in others. It is a rare and precious gift in this world. The second suggestion that will tremendously help the deepening of your practice, of your mindfulness, of your concentration, is slowing down, literally slowing down in your movements, in how you act it becomes much easier to experience the subtleties of what it is that's going on when we're moving more slowly. We're not rushing through things, we're rushing over things. Now, in the slowing down, we begin to feel our bodies more carefully. We begin to experience our senses more sensitively. And this takes a bit of an effort at first, because especially for those of you who have just come, but perhaps even for those of you who have been here a week, we're a speedy culture. It's like we're just in the habit of moving quickly and doing things quickly and getting things done. Take a deep breath. There's really nothing much to do here and nowhere to go and so you can take your time doing it. Take your time doing the small things, you know, brushing your teeth, putting your shoes on, closing doors. You know, you're living in the dorms. Do you just kind of slam the door closed, or do you take the time to close the door silently? That takes some attention. That takes some sensitivity. You know, when you eat, and you be mindful of the eating. And at the same time, you need to be aware of the context of what you're doing. And so if you're on the lunch line and there are 50 people behind you, that's not the time to be creeping along. <laughs> you know, you can move a little more quickly, mindfully. So be aware of context as well as the specifics of what you're doing. One of the miracles that happens through the simplicity of slowing down, of just moving more slowly, is that experience becomes very vivid. Even the simplest experience, the movement of an arm, or the seeing of something, or the hearing of a sound, when we're there in a careful way, it becomes, becomes alive 
in a way that usually we don't experience you know, at our normal speed. Roger O'Keefe, you know, the famous painter from New Mexico, she wrote, still in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small. We haven't time. And to see takes time, like to have a friend takes time. Really, we're becoming friends with the moment. Sometimes people hear about silence, hear about slowing down, and especially before the actual experience of it. And it might sound a little grim. You know, oh my God, nine days. <laughs> you know, moving like a zombie and not speaking to anybody, not eye contact, not looking at anybody. Give it a try. You'll like it. <laughs> Because mindfulness does not mean grimness. It's not grim at all. It's a quality of connection. It's a quality of stillness. It's a quality of opening to what's happening. It's almost like it's a nine-day ceremony. Any of you seen, uh, maybe even participated in a Japanese tea ceremony? It's a very formalized way of making and serving and drinking tea. And it's so beautiful because every action, every movement is done with such tremendous refinement. In a way, our whole day can become a Japanese tea ceremony. And all it takes is the quality of our attention. There are two attitudes which give nourishment and support to our practice. The first one is patience. Know in advance. Be forewarned. This is not a bliss trip. It's just not. (laughs) So there will be many ups and downs in the course of a day, in the course of a sitting or a walking. You know, as I said, you'll be happy and depressed and calm and not calm. And So what's required is a great deal of patience. Knowing that these ups and downs, these changes are going to happen, stay constant, stay steady. This is part of the path. This is how it unfolds. So if you know that, then as you face all of these changes, some pleasant, some unpleasant, and we have this patience, we have this constancy, it makes the practice much steadier. And we retain a certain kind of equilibrium through it all. The second quality, beside patience, and one that many of you have been developing for this past week, is the quality of metta, of loving-kindness. And what this means is that whether we do it as a formal practice or simply as an attitude that we bring to our experience, it's an attitude of friendliness. Friendliness towards whatever is arising. Friendliness to ourselves, friendliness to our fellow yogis. 
even when they're bugging us because of things they're doing? Can we remember this practice of metta, of loving-kindness? Now, in this world, it's an extraordinary thing for a hundred people or so to come together for a week to sit in silence. And the reason that everybody has come to do it is to practice being awake. This is an amazing thing. So even with all the rubs of a hundred yogis practicing together, remember this quite extraordinary thing that everyone here is doing. It generates a kind of respect both for oneself and for others. It's pretty rare. There's, there's a line from an ancient 13th or 14th century samurai poem from Japan, and the line says, I make my mind my friend. And I love that. If nothing else happened during this retreat, except that we make our minds our friends, that would be a huge accomplishment. And so we can practice remembering that. Be friendly towards whatever arises. And be friendly when you're not friendly to what's arising. The most basic principle in the Buddha's teachings is that everything arises when the necessary conditions are there for that particular experience to arise. It's very obvious and very simple and very profound. Everything arises out of the appropriate conditions. So for now, we all have the time, the resources, the interest, the commitment, the willingness, all of those conditions which brought us together here to practice together, to be on retreat. We can see these conditions and reflect on all the conditions as a pretty great blessing and gift in our lives. Realizing that the conditions themselves are impermanent and transient. They're not always there. Now, there are so many places in the world where people were just leading ordinary, stable lives, and then in a day or a week, or a whole world can be turned upside down. And of course, we're all very aware of that, just with the dramatic natural disaster of the tsunami, and just in moments, lives lost, lives changed. But those conditions are changing in less dramatic ways all the time. You know, it could be the onset of some illness or change in one circumstance. There's so many things. I think it's worth reflecting just briefly on the blessing of being able to practice, of having this time, of having this space, of having the interest to do it.
out of the silence, of the practice, out of the silence of this retreat, out of the awareness that we develop, comes a slowly growing compassion, both for our own suffering and for the suffering in the world. Awareness and compassion are intimately related. And even as we proceed from one moment to the next, you know, one breath, one step, one movement, even as we're paying attention moment to moment, it's helpful to hold the vision of the larger possibilities of what we're developing those qualities of wisdom and compassion. Whether we call it awakening, whether we call it enlightenment, whether we call it happiness, whether we call it peace, this is the direction, this is the, the end, this is the goal of all the work that we do here. I'd just like to close with a few lines from a wonderful book, it's an old book, uh, called Mount Analog by René Domal. And the book is a, it's about climbing a mountain as, as a metaphor for the spiritual journey. Um, so he wrote, keep your eye fixed on the path to the top, but don't forget to look right in front of you. The last step depends on the first. Don't think you've arrived just because you see the summit. Watch your footing. Be sure of the next step. But don't let that that distract you from the highest goal, because the first step depends on the last. So thank you and welcome. So welcome. I first heard Joseph used that quotation from Mount Analog in 1974. So I was having a huge deja vu. (laughs) I'd like to uh, formally begin the retreat by first describing and then uh, having us take the three refuges and the five precepts. I was talking to some of you earlier tonight, some friends of mine who are here sitting, And they reminded me of a story I had told about this time I taught a weekend retreat somewhere and somebody came up to me all kind of awe-stricken and she said to me, did you make all this up? (laughs) And I said, well, no, as a matter of fact, I didn't. The next question she had was, well, couldn't you say that Western Buddhism bears absolutely no connection to Asian Buddhism? And I said, I hope not. (laughs) I hope you couldn't say that. When we uh, talk about the three refuges, the three refuges are the Buddha himself, the Dharma, his teaching, uh, or the truth, the laws of nature, and the Sangha, or the community of beings who walk a path and attain some realization. It's not meant to be um, in any kind 
Uh, it's not meant to be any kind of dogmatic assertion that one needs to declare oneself a Buddhist or, or reject anything else. In fact, a very famous saying in India is that the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. He taught a way of life. And so it has nothing to do with a belief system or subscribing to a belief system. Really, when we think about the Buddha or we take refuge in the Buddha, some of it is that reflection that you know somebody didn't make this up three weeks ago. Um, but mostly, it's a sense of respect for human potential. In the tradition in which we practiced in Theravada Buddhism, uh, found in Southeast Asia, it's always taught that the Buddha was a human being and that he had some very, very human questions about the nature of life. In effect, he was asking, you know, what does it mean to have a human body, to be an infant, to be so vulnerable to the influences around us, so dependent, and then to grow up and to grow old, to get sick whether we like it or not, to die whether we like it or not. What does it mean to have a human body? And is there a quality of happiness that is unbroken? even as the body follows its own nature? And what does it mean to have a human mind so that we may wake up in the morning filled with faith, and then there's doubt, and then there's anger, then there's joy, then there's love, then there's sorrow, then there's fear, and just this cascade of emotions outside of our control, our dominion. And is there a quality of happiness to be found anyway? It said that the the answers or the resolution to those questions that the Buddha discovered, he found through the power of his own awareness, and so can we. So the reflection of human nature is that all of us, not just some of us, like the, the talented amongst us or the lucky or, or the elect, but everybody has a capacity to grow, to learn, to understand our lives, to love, in an unbounded way, that this capacity exists inside everybody, that it may be because of the experiences of our lives covered over, it may be something we're not in touch with, it may be something awfully hard to believe in, but it's there, that it's never ever destroyed. And so when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's really asserting something about ourselves. I sometimes think of the Buddha as a, a kind of, it's almost like a kind of transparency. We look at the Buddha to see something about ourselves. And we look at ourselves not to regard ourselves as splendid while everyone else is terrible, but to understand that this is a universal capacity, that we all share it without exception. So we look at ourselves to see all beings. And this is what we do in taking refuge. We look at the Buddha to see ourselves. We look at ourselves to see all beings. When we first opened the center, and those of you who were here for the previous course, know, you know, I, I said this is sort of a, a time of nostalgia, always this season for me, because we moved in in uh, February, moved in Valentine's Day of 1976. And um, I also talked about how we had big debates about things like, should we have Buddha statues anywhere? You know, because after all, people come here, it has nothing to do with becoming a, a Buddhist. It really has to do with one's own, 
profound experience of oneself. And so maybe that's misleading to have Buddha statues. But on the other hand, you know, we um, had kind of that symbolic association. This was the context within which we had all practiced ourselves in Asia. And besides, as I said, somebody had quite a number of Buddha statues <laughs> from his time in Asia. So we finally uh, had them shipped from Maryland and, and put them out in various places. And um, I quite like it because it resonates with me to have that reminder, not as an external form, but about myself. So we take refuge in the Buddha very much in that light. And then we take refuge in the Dharma, uh, the teachings, the truth, the laws of nature, recognizing that it's a self-witnessed truth. What we discover isn't something anybody else can give us, but it's also not something anybody else can take away from us. And so we pay attention to the truth of how things are for us. The whole retreat environment is designed to support us in that. There's basically nothing else to do here but to look, to use the power of our own awareness to discover whatever and to allow it to unfold in, in its own way, in its own time. So we take refuge in the truth right in front of us because hidden within that truth is a more ultimate truth. In the Chinese tradition, there's a saying, if you want to understand the nature of water, look at the waves. So this is what we do in each moment. We look at the waves of our experience, the waves of our mind, because within that is what we are seeking. It's the truth of our experience, a, more, a deeper truth, a more hidden truth. We don't have to discount what's happening right now. We don't have to disregard it. We don't have to trade it in for something better. We have to see it more clearly, go within. Be quiet with it so that we can experience it more fully. This is taking refuge in the Dharma. Then we take refuge in the Sangha, which actually has several meanings. Uh, traditionally, it means, first of all, the order of monks and nuns, the monastic order, which for centuries has preserved the teaching of the Buddha so that what we experience in terms of methodology um, is intact, which is really pretty remarkable. I mean, we all know how difficult it is to imagine just a few of us having a conversation in here and 15 minutes later there being much of a resemblance to that conversation as it's relayed to somebody out there. And to think that for all of these centuries, this uh, tradition has, has been intact. It also has a meaning, uh, Sangha has a meaning of those beings who have attained realization, those beings who've broken free from the habits of their mind, from their own conditioning, who have been willing to take a risk, to be unconventional, to step away from the familiar, to really look and who are, just like the Buddha, human exemplars for us. They can do it, I can do it. And then there is the kind of contemporary meaning of the word Sangha, which is 
the community that we go upon a path with. It's all of us gathered here together right now that have formed the Sangha for this time. And we, we support one another through our efforts here together. Sometimes even though we are practicing a kind of solitude within, we need one another as well to, to support us in that endeavor and to respect one another quite a lot in that. So those are the three refuges. And then there are the five precepts, which are actually the ethical guidelines for the time that we are here together. They're not too long after we opened up the center, some of our friends came to us and they said, you know, our parents are extremely concerned about this bizarre habit we've undertaken of meditation and they're very, very worried about us. So don't you think it would be a good idea to gather together all of these hostile, frightened people and lead a retreat for them? So we said, sure, and it was called the Parents' Course. Um, we did a few of these in a row. So um, the first Parents' Course we did, we knew that they could never, ever be silent while eating. You know, that the, the social embarrassment of it would be so incredible, it was impossible. So even though we had periods of silence, we didn't have silent meals, and we ate with them. So I remember the very first breakfast, I was sitting with Joseph at a table and somebody's mother leaned across the table and looked Joseph in the eye and said, you've kidnapped my daughter and you've brainwashed her and it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> so that was sort of the general tenor of the parents' course, um, at least at the beginning of the course. It changed quite a bit by the end, but uh, something that I found so poignant was these people would come here into the meditation hall and they'd have like all their stuff with them, you know, because they were afraid to leave it in the room. And they would just have these piles of belongings. And, <laughs> and I thought, wow, look at how people live. And of course, many places you kind of almost need to live that way, but they'd have all this stuff. And then, you know, people would lock their doors, the doors to their rooms behind them by pushing that button, and we didn't have any keys. You know, so somebody was always running around looking for a master key so we could let someone into the room with all their stuff, which they hadn't left in the room anyway, you know, because they brought it all with them. And um, it, it was such an amazing reflection on how extraordinary it is that we can create a community of safety where you actually don't have to worry. You don't have to have that kind of guarded feeling and defensiveness and fear. It's okay. And it's amazing to think that each of us comes here and makes that kind of commitment to non-harming, uh, to respecting one another, to having compassion be the basis for how we are relating both to ourselves and, and to one another. And so that's the the nature of the precepts that we undertake for the time that we're here together. It's that network of safety and compassion. We undertake a precept to refrain from killing any living being, not to create harm. Uh, that includes, you know, flies and mosquitoes and things like that. There are no mosquitoes right now, but there are flies. And um, 
to understand that these these precepts are in the, the nature of training precepts. They're for the awakening of our mind. They form a possibility, a direction for us, and they hold us in this container of safety. So we undertake them in that light, the precept to refrain from harm, to rather use this time here together as a time of developing a reverence for all of life. We undertake a precept not to steal, not to take that which is not offered so that no one has to drag around all their stuff. And the deeper meaning of that is to have a sense of contentment, to be at ease with what is offered and to actually practice that. We undertake a precept to refrain from what in the world is sexual misconduct, which means using our sexual energy in a way that causes harm to ourselves or to others. And in the context of the retreat, that becomes a precept of refraining from sexual activity altogether so that all of our energy can be used in the process of discovery. And there isn't that kind of externalization um, as, we, as we are here together. We undertake a precept which also in the world is to refrain from lying and um, malicious speech and things like that. And here it is deepened to that precept of silence, to maintain silence. And it, you know, certainly if you need to speak to someone on staff, you should. And uh, there's, there are many opportunities uh, for you to speak to one of us, and, and please do. Um, but in terms of just that kind of casual conversation one might have with one another, as Joseph was saying, it's a very powerful thing to let go of that and step into another world. For one thing, we notice an awful lot that we don't notice when we're busily engaged in, what am I going to say next? Will it be impressive? How do I sound? What did they think of that? And it's a lot to let go of, and it's well let go of. Sometimes when people think about the retreat or they look forward to the retreat, it is the most anxiety-producing element of it. You know, like, I don't know if I can be silent. And people say, you know, my partner said, I'll never make it. You know, I can't be silent. Or the people at the office, or they have a betting pool going about how long I'll be able to be silent. And, um, you know, I'll never be able to do it. But almost always, looking back, people see it as just about the most beautiful part of their being here. Because it's like for once we can be quiet and just be ourselves, not in reference to someone else and how they see us, but just as ourselves. And then we undertake a precept to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind or cause heedlessness, means drugs or alcohol, uh, not prescription drugs, which if you are taking, please continue to take, but <laughs> recreational drugs or alcohol, but rather to harness the actual power of the mind in this process of seeing clearly. So to, to formally begin, as I said, um, I would like to do what we do traditionally, which is for me to repeat uh, 
the refuges verse three times, and you can silently repeat it to yourself in the way that makes sense to you, that really resonates with you. And then I'll repeat each of the precepts once, and here too you can silently repeat that to yourself as you um, have that feeling of commencing this journey here together. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I undertake the precept to refrain from killing any living being. I undertake the precept to refrain from stealing or taking that which has not been offered. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual activity. I undertake the precept to refrain from lying and false speech. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking intoxicants. Thank you. So I'd also like to take this time to welcome you all, particularly those who've just arrived. And for those of you who just have just arrived, uh, about a third of the retreat has been doing a meta retreat. And so you're sort of coming into this field of loving kindness. And I hope that the spirit of that practice, of as Joseph was saying, that deep friendliness, that we can really approach our experience and ourselves and everything that happens on the retreat with that spirit of friendliness. So for right now, we'll sit for a short time before we close. So finding a comfortable posture. The back is relatively upright. We'll give more thorough instructions tomorrow about posture and about the practice. But for now, simply closing the eyes, settling the attention into the experience of the body, aware of the sensations of sitting, sensing the contact of the buttocks and the legs and the feet with the ground.
as we bring our attention into our body, becoming aware of the sensations of breath, letting the attention settle upon each in-breath, each out-breath, the relaxed, open, and alert attention. Letting the breath breathe itself, breathing naturally. Simply connecting with each in-breath and each out-breath. And each time you notice that the attention has become absorbed and lost in a thought or has drifted in some way from this moment without judgment or criticism, beginning the practice again, sensing the breath, 